If you've been around Northview long, uh, you should know that we are really passionate about leadership development and uh, training up people for full-time work and part-time work and work as leadership even in, lay, in a lay capacity in churches all over the place. Um, we want to multiply healthy local churches all over Canada, especially so we can see a gospel renewal happen. Um, the way you do that is to train leaders who can bring that gospel renewal. So church planting and church replanting is basically a leadership development movement. And so we've been thinking for the last number of years, how can we actually recruit, train, uh, and, and send out people who are, train, who are capable of doing this particular work? And so we've kind of used the, the image of a of a, you know, the way a baseball team forms a farm system where they have a single A and a double A and a triple A level. So our single A level is what we call our ministry apprenticeship program. It used to be called our internship program, but we've changed the name. The second tier, the double A uh, tier, is people who want to get seminary training. So they're, they're really interested in, in being pastors or leaders in local churches. And so we bring them along and we give them actually a full seminary degree, a Master of Divinity degree over a period of four years while they're working here. It's called our Immerse program. So there's all sorts of men and women who are here who are doing that work. The uh, AAA level is a new one that we've just put together. It's called a Church Planting Residency Program. It's a one-year program that's focused on practical skills for uh, church planters and pastoral leaders so that we can then help train them for that year and then send them out, hopefully with the help financially and visually and also with people um, from our local church to the places that they're planting. And so I want to introduce to you a number of those people who are with us this year. The first couple is um, Caleb Enns and, and his wife Raquel, and they're pursuing a church plant in northern Thailand through Send International, which is a, a great missions agency. Josh and Rebecca Duell will be planting a church in Kelowna as a partnership between Northview and Westside Church in, in Vancouver. We've done partnerships with them before for our Tri-City Church plant. Uh, Cameron and Jessica Daly are working with Coquitlam Alliance Church to plant a campus in Port Moody. And Dave and Crystal Lowen are praying about a new work in the Eastern Fraser Valley, and they're working with various Northview ministries during their time in, in the residency. We want to invite you into prayer for these folks, into encouragement with them. I'm going to tell you at the end of their time, we're going to put them, hopefully, Lord willing, in front of all of us. And we're going to ask you to, to search your hearts and see if the Lord is calling you to be a part of what they want to do in those places. So uh, we're really excited about this program. We're really excited about what God could do uh, by forming a, a group of like-minded churches who are all committed to biblical exposition and gospel proclamation all over the place in Canada so that we can see the gospel come and the, the Lord's kingdom grow. Um, great. Listen, let's get to studying God's word together. I want to show you some pictures. Um, you know, the more you travel around the world and the, the more you spend some time in different cultures, you come to realize that um, Christians in all the other places sometimes have a conception of, of Jesus that's different than what yours is. Um, so I wanted to show you some of the pictures of of the Jesuses that uh, have been portrayed around around the world. And so I've got a few of these these pictures. Here's, of course, the first one, which is uh, the picture of of Jesus who looks like he's a 1970s uh, ABBA member or Barry Manilow or whatever, if you know those, those particular names. He's very white. He's got flowing blondish hair. This is the picture that oftentimes is put on the, on the walls in, in older churches to remind us that Jesus is just, just like us, white folks. 
Um, here's one, though, that is, is more of a black Jesus. Uh, it's very similar to the white one. It's just the skin tone is, is a, lot, a lot darker. Uh, I remember having some friends who had this one on their wall in, in their house. Uh, they were an African-American family, and, and this, was the, this, is, this was the picture of Jesus that, that they had. Um, when I lived in, in New Zealand, <clears throat> one of the cool things is that the native people to New Zealand called the Mori, they have, a, they have uh, lots of pictures of Jesus that portray him in, the, in, in, uh, in Mori dress. So this is uh, people who, who are Maori, they end up having... Um, a lot of face tattoos. It's it's a it's a cultural thing there. And here's the long earring that looks like um, some sort of hook. Um, but this is on the walls in some Maori homes in in New Zealand where where I've been before. <clears throat> People oftentimes though say, hey, all like Jesus was a he was a Jewish guy from the Middle East basically. So um, he probably didn't have the long flowing hair like we think. Uh, he he probably had a darker complexion, and so. This is the best go some people have had at, at the, what they think is the real Jesus. And so, yes, he looks like a Middle Eastern man with a tight beard and, and that, that sort of thing. Um, my favorite, and I had to show you too. It's not my favorite because it's true, but I, I giggle every time I see it. Uh, I'm an American citizen, and so as a result, I'm always, I always giggle at the way that, that, that we Americans try to do something with Jesus. So there he is with his American flag holding it. There's a few others like this that have guns, but I thought that might be a little too much, a bridge too far. But anyway, there you go. There's all sorts of conceptions of who Jesus is, what he's, what he's like. Um, in one sense, it's kind of cool that every culture sees Jesus as for them, as representing them. And so in, in one sense, it's not a big deal, you know, what, what, picture of Jesus we have in our, in our minds. It, it, it's great that people who, have a, have a, who are Caucasian see him for them, and people who are from more African descent see him for them, and people who are Middle Eastern see him for them. That, that's, that's fantastic and should be, honestly, the way that it is. We don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't ever have a picture drawn of him from the first century, and not a whole lot of description of what he was like. We don't know his height or anything like that. Um, but it's never stopped us from wanting to create him kind of in our image. Uh, and that happens on theological levels as well. Uh, there are certain things that we want Jesus to be, certain ways that we want him to act. And so, for example, there's a group called the Jesus Seminar that has gotten together for a, a number of years. I don't know if they meet much anymore, but they gather together and they decide what parts of the New Testament, the things that are said about Jesus and that he himself says, what parts of those are from the, are the genuine historical Jesus and which ones are the Jesus of faith and which ones could he not have said, said it all? Now, Jesus of faith is different than the Jesus of history. Jesus of faith is the made up one that Christians have and the, the Jesus of history is the real Jesus. And so they'll take passages like the Lord's, uh, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. And the only part of it they think that Jesus said is uh, Father, our Father. And the rest of it, they say, ah, that's not the real thing. How do they make the determination? Well, mostly based upon what they want Jesus to say and, and be. They, they vote over what they think he, he was saying and the kinds of things that he would have said to other people in his day. Um, 
I read a book a number of years ago that was really used a lot by men's ministry folks. And uh, in, the, in that one, Jesus was uh, in no way weak or effeminate. He was rough and tumble, you know. He had, he had some, some mighty guns on his arms, and he was, uh, was the kind of guy who would like to hop over holes in the ground in the middle of the wilderness and, you know, uh, rappel down steep slopes and drive a huge truck. That's, that's the Jesus that they portray. And he, he was rough and, and sometimes harsh and a man's man. Um, Everybody basically has a conception of Jesus. Everybody, quite honestly, has their own Jesus. And you know that because when sometimes you get in a conversation with somebody and uh, you are talking to them about the way Jesus is portrayed in Scripture, or you say, well, this is what Jesus did, they'll say, oh, no, my Jesus would never do that. Which means, of course, that they have a picture of Jesus that might be very different from what perhaps the scriptures say. Jesus is not one who would judge them. Jesus is not one who would, you know, turn over the tables in the temple. Jesus is not one who would welcome them home for some people. He's a strict judge for some people. But what is he really like? And, and where do we find that out? If we had to ask, what are the character traits of Jesus? We, we would want to know that from somebody who actually knew him, somebody that was trustworthy. Uh, he would have to know him or maybe know the people who knew him and was be a, able to do a bunch of research to find out from them what he, what he was like in the same way that, you know, uh, you might want to find out what somebody is like if they're applying for a job in your organization and you find references and all those sorts of things. You want to talk to the people who know him. You want to know them yourself. You want to get involved in all that. What you need, what you need is somebody like, like Luke. Um, Luke is the author of the gospel that bears his name. He's also the author of the book of Acts. And those two books, Luke and Acts, form a, um, a two-part series. One having to do with the life of Jesus, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, is what Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples after Jesus um, rose on high. And so, um, what we want to do over the next number of, quite honestly, years is take this book of Luke, this first bit, and we want to study it together in, in pieces. Um, this year, we're going to be studying the first part of it, and, and one of the things you'll find in this first part of the book of Luke, it has to do with some of the birth narratives and stories about Jesus that come around Christmas. One of the things you'll learn really quickly is that the Jesus that you meet in those passages is really an unexpected one. Um, he, he comes to the people in, in meekness and not in great pomp and circumstance. He is not at all what people would expect from a, a great Jewish Messiah who has come to kick out the Romans out of the land of Palestine. So that's what we're calling this the next little while, un, unexpected. And I think in the next few weeks, you'll find that, the, that, that getting to know Jesus is an important, significant part of your, your faith, and ultimately, I think that Luke is going to be a fantastic guide for us in that, in that quest. So here's what I want to do. I want to, in this first one, just cover the first uh, four verses of the book of Luke. And in it, uh, we're going to try to answer the question, why should you listen or why should we listen to Luke when it comes to his story about Jesus? 
What, what, what gives him authority? What gives him the right? What gives him the, the rapport for us to follow what it is that he has to say? So I got three reasons. Uh, the first is, the reason we should listen to him is that first, the story is handed down from trusted sources. Second, the story is researched. And third, the story gives certainty for those who believe. Okay? Here's the first of those. The story is handed down by trusted sources. So I just read the passage, Luke 1, 1 to 4, and, and, you'll, and then I'll point out a couple things in it. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now, what I really want to zero in on in this first little part is that, that language of many have undertaken to draw up an account. Um, there were lots of uh, stories about Jesus in, in the ancient world. And as time went on from the first century and then to, into the second century, there were more, we should call it mystical stories about Jesus, stuff that he did maybe when he was a baby, like turning people to pillars of salt or making you know, clay pigeons become live and fly away so his little friends would be excited. You can actually read about those and on the, on the internet. They've posted some of the, those old stories from Jesus. Those are from the second century and they're there because we, didn't, we don't, aren't told a lot about what Jesus was like as a, as a young guy, you know, a school-aged school child. But here are some of the titles of some of the books that were, that were written, some of the stories that were written about Jesus. Uh, you have the Gospel of Thomas, you have the secret book of James, the gospel of the Savior, the gospel of Mary, the gospel of truth, the Acts of Peter, the Acts of Thomas, the gospel of Mark, which is included in our scriptures, the gospel of Matthew, and the gospel of Judas, which is a recent uh, discovery that, that, that people have made a number of years ago. So the question that you have to ask is, okay, wait a minute, if, if the Gospels that we have in the New Testament, and the Gospel of Luke in particular, is here, and we've put that in our Bible, why don't we have, I don't know, the secret book of James in our Bible, or why don't we have the Gospel of Truth in, in, our, in our Bibles? Um, these Gospels fall into two categories. Uh, one of the categories is, is, is a thing called the, the Orthodox. It's what we've put in our Bible, the Orthodox teaching about Jesus, which are usually the books that are earlier and are derived from eyewitnesses. The other group are called the Gnostic Gospels. So the Gnostic Gospels are later, they're second century, sometimes third century uh, stories about Jesus. We're talking like 100 years later, sometimes 200 years later than the time of Jesus, and um, like I said, they make up these fanciful stories, but one of the key characteristics of almost all the Gnostic Gospels is that Jesus isn't really physical, he's way more spiritual. Like the physical body is something you want to do away with and not emphasize in the life of Christ, and it's not even important that he was physical. It's, it's important that he was spiritual. The spiritual Jesus is what matters. So I've said before in some of my sermons that you get, with Gnostic Gospels, you get stories about how Jesus doesn't blink which, I mean, again, is, is, is crazy. I can't imagine following a Savior who just never, never blinks. Follow me. Do it. Um, 
Sometimes you have uh, stories about Jesus who, when they're following him along a beach, they, it says that, they, that they, he didn't make any footprints on the sand because he just sort of floated above, right? Because physical bodies put footprints on the sand, but others, others float above. That Jesus was hollow, that if you reached your hand and put it through him, you'd be like putting it through Casper the Friendly Ghost. You just shove that hand right through there and you pull it back, right? Lovely Halloween trick. Jesus, the Halloween costume, right? He's, he's the scary one who floats around, doesn't blink, and uh, doesn't leave any footprints. That that's really is a, a common picture of what, what Jesus was like, that when he died on the cross, he, actually, he wasn't actually there. The real Jesus was spiritual Jesus up in heaven laughing that he had duped everyone to kill this body, which he didn't actually inhabit. So th- these stories took, took off a lot. And they formed this group called the Gnostic Gospels. Now, modern scholars, they will end up saying, well, the real Jesus, if you ask them, well, which one is true? Which one? Is it the Orthodox Jesus or is it the Gnostic Jesus? So what they will end up, a lot of modern scholars will say, no, critics of Christianity will say, no, it's these Gnostic stories about Jesus that are the true ones. And they say that because they're the people who were oppressed by the early church, and they're basically the ones who lost the fight early on and And therefore, the winners get to write the history. But the real Jesus is this floaty kind of Jesus who did all all these other things. But there is a reason why it is that you should believe that the Orthodox books about Jesus, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that they are actually telling you the truth. And, And Luke himself identifies why in this little passage. I think you saw it. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were, now listen, they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So Luke's basically saying, listen, here's why it is that you need to listen to me. Why my story about Jesus is separate from a lot of the other ones that float out around uh, around us. It's based upon eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts. Um. I want you to pretend perhaps for a minute that um, Darcy, who's hosting our, our online services this, this week, Darcy is, uh, is uh, being accused of, of some vandalism around the church. He has written on one of the walls of our church, I hate Jeff Bucknam. Um, one person saw him do it. One of our admin assistants, she was walking around the corner saw him with his little spray paint and his hat turned backwards and, and saw him spray paint the wall, I hate Jeff Bucknam. And so when the time comes for us to sit Darcy down in a room, we have a conversation with him about this. We say, well, we have an eyewitness. We have somebody who saw you do it. And he says, oh, yeah, but I have, I have some testimony from a friend of mine who was, stay, was at home at the time, but had heard, have heard stories about, this, about the spray painting, and they, they, think it's, they think it's not true. Now, of course, if you're sitting in that room and you have to make a decision about who to listen to, are you going to listen to the witness that saw it happen and claims to be an eyewitness of the event, or are you gonna listen to the person who was separated by space and perhaps by time and what they have to say, and of course the answer is obvious, you, you're going to listen to the eyewitness. Yes, of course you are. Eyewitnesses always have more authority in a court of law. Can they lie? Of course. Yes, they can. But it, 
It's usually proved that way. If you have a number of eyewitnesses who all verify the same events that were happening, you probably are on the right track regarding the truth of it. And what you have in the Gospel of Luke is an eyewitness account. Now, you can imagine that story about Darcy and say a hundred years from now, uh, this is such an important event, the Darcy spray painting, I hate Jeff Buckham on the wall. That's such an important event that somebody picks it up and, and he reads the story about it and says, well, I don't actually think, a hundred years later, I don't actually think that this person who is an eyewitness is really trustworthy, this admin assistant is not really trustworthy. Um, instead, we're as somebody who's a hundred years from this moment, uh, I believe instead that it's this other person who was not there, but who has heard, heard about it. They're the ones we should listen to. Now you've got a situation where that person is separated not only by distance, but by time. And so you would never listen to the person who comes in a hundred years later and makes that statement. And yes, that's exactly what you have with a lot of the other documents that you're facing in the New Testament, uh, rivals to the New Testament Gospels. You should listen to Luke, in other words. He's derived all of this from eyewitness accounts. He's going to report to you and to me what he, he saw or what the high witnesses reported that they saw. And he's going to hand it to you. And so, I mean, there's some important things for you to think about when it comes to, to that line of thinking. One of them is... Um, you really should have a lot of confidence when you come to the scriptures and you read the Gospels. Uh, the Christian church has been around a very, very long time, and there have been a lot of people who've tried to disprove what it is that the Gospels say about Jesus, and the church is still standing, and there are reasonable answers to every uh, objection that's been raised. So if you want to get to know Jesus, the place to get to know Jesus is, is in the Bible. And even those skeptics are going to come along and say, no, that's not the right place to do it. You should listen to us instead. No, no. No, no. The eyewitnesses are the people you wanna, that you want to listen to. So the first point, the reason that you should listen to, to Luke is that the story is handed down from trusted sources, namely eyewitnesses. The second reason is that he's researched this story. It's not just that he has heard it from other people and just accepted it on the face. He followed it up and tried to figure out, wait a minute, is what they're telling me the truth? Have other people seen it? Can they corroborate that kind of thing. So let me read the passage again and just point out a different, a different little section of it. Many have, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, listen, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. I have carefully investigated, he said. I've looked into it. I've, I've played the role of an investigative reporter or a detective when it comes to this, to this work. And you, of course, know what an, what an investigative reporter does, right? They, they, they find out about a little story or a big story, and they, they're a little skeptical at the front end, perhaps, about different aspects of it. Maybe they do believe it at the front end, but they, they know that they can't publish anything without corroborating the evidence. So then they go around to the neighbors, they, they go around to uh, the boss, and they ask questions, hard questions. They might ask hard questions of the individual themselves. They might ask hard questions about the character of the person in question. They, they chase down all the aspects of it, and they follow the evidence where it leads. They carefully investigate the things so that when they publish the, the, the story in their paper, they, they're not going to get sued. 
and a detective, they, they actually want to get a conviction. So they're going to get they cross every T, dot every I, make sure that everything is done appropriately and they have an answer for every objection. Well, this is what Luke says he's done here. Uh, he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. This is an important point uh, that Christianity is different than other world religions in, in many different senses, but one of the big differences between Christianity and other world religions is that Christianity is an investigatable faith. It is a thing that happened in history. Jesus was a person who lived, died, rose again. Those are all historical claims. Christianity is not about some feeling that somebody had in their heart one day. It's not about some vision they had in their head that they reported and wrote down in, in, a, in a book and said, now you should believe me. And you say, well, why should I believe you? Well, because I saw it. I, in my head, I saw it. Well, but it's not something that can be testable. We can't verify what you're saying about what happened just in, in your dream. You're just telling us what, what, you, what you felt on a particular day or what you dreamt on a particular night. So you might be telling the truth, but we're not sure if you're telling the truth because we can't, we can't verify it. Christianity is verifiable. It's a historical claim that there was a guy named Jesus who died on a cross, who was born of a virgin, who died on a cross years later, and he rose again from the dead three days after the death. And you can investigate all of that. Many see Christians um, as the world's biggest dupes. And if we did just a little research, we would, we would see how mistaken those people are. Uh, or, sorry, how mistaken the story itself is. That's what they claim. But the opposite is true. The history of Christianity, like I said before, has, has a bunch of people who've tried to disprove this thing, and yet you hear it, here it still stands. I don't know if you know that um, a, lot of, a lot of what happens in, in, uh, in, in people who are young who want to hold on to the faith, or it, they, they end up going oftentimes away to, to college or, or something, and they've, they've inherited their parents' faith uh, up to a particular point, maybe when they graduate, and, then they, and then, they, then they go off and they kind of have to live their own lives. And what happens in that moment is they have to kind of make the faith their own. Um, that's essentially what Luke is saying here to this guy Theophilus, is I want you to make the faith your own. I, I want you to, to understand that I've carefully investigated it, and you too can carefully investigate what it is that I'm saying. Uh, this has been my story, quite honestly. I, I, I'm a skeptic at heart. I've, st I've struggled with uh, a lot of truth claims of Christianity. I was educated in secular universities and um, had sat in lots and lots of debates and conversations with atheist people and some people who were not atheists but religious in another way or agnostic about the Christian faith. And so I, I have heard lots and lots of the objections to Christianity, and they have, really, they have really hit home with me in a lot of ways. And so, you know, when I was in college, I, I really had to go through a point where I, I had to look into a lot of it. Um, I fully admit that I, I wanted it to be true, uh, but I was worried that it wasn't. So I looked into it, and the thing I looked into most particularly was the claims of the resurrection. And um, I had been told by people, there's no way that Jesus could have resurrected from the dead. There's a whole bunch of other explanations for, for, for what could have happened. And so some of those explanations from some people were like, well, Jesus probably just swooned, meaning that he was on the cross and he just sort of fainted when he was up there. And then he woke up later and he was in the tomb and he unraveled himself, got out, 
and you know, ended up going to France somewhere or something like that, and they didn't hear from him. So, but the, the disciples thought he had risen from the dead because they couldn't find the body. I, yeah, I do, there's all sorts of problems with that. I, I, I'm trying to understand how some guy who has been beaten to within an inch of his life on, on, this, on this take um, is then removed from the cross with broken... Uh, broken bones in his hands and, and all that kind of thing. He, he unravels himself from the basic mummification and then he goes to the, to the stone that was sealed by a Roman seal and then he rolls the stone away by himself while Roman guards were there and then he gets out there and then beats them up. I mean, come on. This doesn't, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. That's not, that's not what somebody who is you know, beaten within an inch of their life and hanging on a cross for a long time does. A few minutes, uh, you know, like a few hours later or three days later or something. It's just not what happens. Uh, other people have said, well, uh, uh, it was a hallucination. You know, uh, the, the Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. People just saw him. Um, yeah, but 500 or more people saw him. And so it had to be like a mass hallucination. Like everybody was smoking peyote or something like that. And they all had, they all had got the same kind of vision at the same time. Uh, that's, that's hard to believe that everybody would have that as well. And, and also, if that was the case, why didn't they just go back to the tomb and grab the body, hold it up to everyone, you know? We can at Bernie's style and say, look, here he is. Here he is. Here's the body. He's, he's dead. So that didn't make sense to me either. It just didn't fit with some of the, the details of, of history. Um, there are those who say, well, the disciples just lied about it, right? They just wanted political power, and so they lied about it. Yeah, but they died for that lie. I mean, who dies for a lie that they know is a lie? I mean, if I'm standing on the time in James' case, I'm, they said that the tradition is that he was thrown off the, the, the roof of the temple because he wouldn't recant. He wouldn't turn away. But so Jay, here's James, the brother of Jesus, who's seen all this stuff happen, and he's standing up there at the pinnacle of the temple, and they're about to throw him off the side, and they say, you, James, tell us... Uh, you, you tell us that this isn't true, that this is all a lie. It was a fabrication. And he says in this one moment, no. And so they throw him off and he dies. I mean, I, I would think that I would make a business decision at that point and say, ah, oh, you're right. It was all a lie. My bad. We, we made it up because we wanted to become, you know, really famous people in the Roman society or something. So it doesn't really make sense for people to die for a lie from my point of view. And then there's the most popular view that lots of people always told me is that this is just a, a myth that has grown over time. Uh, you know, the fish started this big and then the actual, when you caught it, but then after time, it's this, every time you tell the story, it gets bigger and bigger. Well, that's just like, Jesus is just a guy. And then eventually people just said, oh, he was a God and he did all these amazing things. And the stuff that are written down in the scriptures are actually just the big stories, the big fish stories. Okay, the problem is that the stuff that we're reading here is from eyewitnesses. That's the, that's the point Luke's making, is that this stuff comes from the eyewitness accounts. And you can date many of the things that are written here within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. If, if you told a story that the eyewitnesses thought was wrong, wouldn't they just raise their hand up at some point and say, yeah, yeah, that didn't happen. And yet... They didn't. In fact, they corroborated the very things that are written down in books like Luke. Anyway, my, my point here is that, you know, I just got to the point where I ended up chasing all of this down and I realized that the, the, the arguments that are being made for the truthfulness of Christianity and the truthfulness, especially of the resurrection, I could not get around. And I believe me, I, I, did the, I tried to do the research. 
And I came out on the other end thinking that this, this faith, this is, is got to be true. It's got to be true. And so it, investi- it invites you to investigate as well. If you're skeptic or you doubt or anything like that, there's all sorts of books and opportunities you have to investigate the faith of Christianity. And I, you know, we as a church, we're the first ones who want to say, you know what, you should do that. There are lots of people who will make uh, statements like, um, well, when I went to church when I was a kid and I had questions, I went to the pastor's office and I said to the pastor, I have these important questions about the Christian faith. And the pastor looked at me, nodded and said, yeah, those are really good questions. But here's the best thing for you to do is to just push those questions to the side and just have faith. I don't know how many people who've abandoned the Christian faith who are my age who have that story that the pastor told them to just just have faith. Okay, so listen, I'm the pastor, you're in my office, I'm expecting you to not just have faith, I'm expecting you to investigate the faith. That's what Luke does, he invites you to do the thing. Investigate the faith. All right, last one. Why should we listen to Luke? Well, at the end here he says that the story gives gives certainty that his story is going to give us some level of confidence that what he's saying true is true and ultimately confidence to live our lives following Jesus and knowing that we have an eternal home with him. So let me read the passage again and just focus on the end portion this time. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Who is Theophilus? Well, his, his name means lover of God, Theos, God, Phileo, love, lover of God, Theophilus. But that's a common name for a lot of people in those days. And so it's not just like a moniker that Luke made up uh, for everybody who's reading his, his gospel. This is an actual person, and he's called, if you noticed, most excellent. And that language is usually reserved for Roman political officials. And so it's likely that Theophilus had some sort of high standing in the Roman government. He's a man, he's a man of means, and he's a man of uh, honor a lot of people who think highly of him. What's really interesting about Theophilus is if you go to the second book in the, in the series, right? so you, Luke and then you have Acts, if you go to the second book in the, in the series, the first verse of Acts is also addressed to Theophilus, but listen to how it reads. Luke says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, what is left out? And the answer is the little phrase, most excellent. So a lot of scholars believe that what happened here is that most excellent Theophilus, he of high standing in the Roman, basically, Roman government or Roman society, has, because of his faith in Jesus, has probably lost that moniker because the faith has cost him something. He was likely what we call a patron, uh, meaning a, like a, a financial supporter who was funding Luke's work to write this gospel, writing gospels and using parchment and uh, giving somebody the time to do all that, that, that actually, uh, to do the research for it, that's actually an expensive thing, right? Ask anybody who's written a book recently or tried to do a, a newspaper report, uh, they get paid to do that. And uh, Luke was being paid probably by this patron to 
write this, this book, to, to gather it together. Theophilus probably was an, you know, he was, he was, a, he was an early Christian, and yet he was also kind of a, an immature Christian. And we know that because Luke says, look, I'm, I'm going to write this for you, Theophilus. You've given me the money to do so, and I'm writing it for you for this purpose. I want you to have certainty of the things you've been taught. Like, I want you to grow in the things that you've been taught. So what you've got here is basically a young person who is going to be making the faith their own, right? Like we said just a minute ago. So what is this certainty, though, that he's supposed to have? Well, that word um, for certainty um, come, it basically means a security from stumbling, and it's used in lots of images in, in ancient Greek to talk about, like, climbing with a rope. You know, if you climb up the side of a mountain and you don't have a rope, uh, there's not any security for if you make a mistake. But if you have a rope, you always know that as you're climbing up the side of the mountain, um, that if you fall, the rope will, will catch you. So you have a confidence to do it. You have certainty that the way you're going is solid and you can do it. It's all, the word is also used for what happens when the foundation of a building starts to get, you know, the posts that they drive in the ground start to rot. You know, if they were wood or whatever, you go down and you reinforce them with concrete, right? So what we do with our bridges, uh, the Portman Bridge that goes over the Fraser River a number of years ago, they started to reinforce it, the, the, the posts that were going in the ground because they were worried the thing was going to tip over or something. That was the old one anyway. Um, so that, that's the picture, is, is kind of a reinforcement of what already exists. So he's saying, look, I, you already have faith, Theophilus, but I, I want to write this so that it reinforces to you the, the, the truth of this thing. And the reason that you need reinforcement is because if you don't have it, there is a risk of falling away. That's, that's what happens. Some, somebody who follows Christ for a little while, then... They don't, the roots don't go down deep, or they don't uh, have reinforced faith. They don't have certainty of the things they've been taught. They face certain circumstances, and then their faith fades away because they're uncertain about it. They fall from the cliff. The rope doesn't catch them because they don't have it. They don't have the certainty. You know, there's a parable that Jesus tells. He actually uses some of that language uh, in the parable of the soils. In the parable of the soils, is the guy, guy goes out, and he throws seed on the ground, and some lands on, the, on that packed path and others lands on the rocky ground, some of thorny soil and then some in the good soil. That, that rocky soil, the, the first three, the, the, fruit, the uh, plant doesn't mature, it doesn't, there's no harvest. That, that first, uh, the second one, the, the rocky soil, okay, not the path, not the thorny, but the rocky soil is uh, basically about um, a layer of bedrock underneath the surface, and so the soil only goes a little, a little deep. And so when the plant grows, it sprouts up quickly because its, its roots go down, but eventually the roots just reach a limit. Jesus says that when the hot sun comes up and it starts to beat down on the plant, what happens to it is that it wilts and dies because its roots don't go down deep enough. And that's a great image for, wh for what happens to somebody who, whose faith isn't reinforced, who doesn't have certainty is that they might go for a little while, but eventually the hot sun will come up, right? Difficulty, persecution, questions about the faith, they'll come up and they just ditch it. So he's trying, Luke is trying to help Theophilus and all the people like him, just like you and me, to not fall away, to actually say, listen, there's good reason for you to believe the things that you believe and I want to try to convince you of it. So let's end by just asking the question, 
how do you get that certainty? How do you get it? Well, um, I think the answer is by getting to know the true Jesus more. You, you, you dig down in, into knowing him more. That's the way you fasten the rope around your waist. Is that, you know, that's, you've got to get those roots going further beyond the bedrock. They need to go deeper into, into Christ. And so you need to get to know him. Um, you need to gain certainty of what he's like. So, you know, when I first got married, um, you know, I knew, I knew my wife, of course. Um, I know her much, much better now. But I, I knew her. Uh, I remember waking up in the middle of the night after I'd been um, married probably a, a month. And I do not know why, but I was freaked out in my heart that she, there were things about her that I didn't know. You know, you see those movies sometimes, people get married and all of a sudden they find out it's an axe murder. Well, I don't know why. I think I was partially dreaming. I was kind of in that dream state. And I remember being freaked out of my mind in the midst of this dream state. I think I was having a dream that she, she was there. I remember one a couple days later, I woke up and she was standing there looking at me. And I, I giggled because I was like, oh, you, it seems like you're, you're kind of creeping me and you're standing there ready to kill me with a knife behind your back. And I told that joke to her at the time. And she said, of, well, of course not. Um, but I didn't know her that well. I mean, I knew her well enough to get married to her, but I didn't know her that well. We'd not slept in the same room before. We'd not spend time uh, overnight. You know, maybe she was going to go and do that thing to me, you know? But how do I know now that she, she wouldn't? Well, you know, I've got a track. She's got a track record with me. I mean, she might do it tonight. I hope not. But she got a track record with me that I've, you know, we've been married for 27 years this year, and uh, there's never been one night where I've woken up with, with a knife in my stomach. And so I have confidence that I can go to sleep and be totally, you know, I can be totally at risk. And I know that she's probably not going to come and do that. Now, that's a silly illustration to make an important point. The, the point is, the more you get to know a person, the more you get to know your char their character, the more you have certainty about what they are going to do and how much you can trust them. And that's really what Luke wants to do for you and me. He wants to say, can I just take you on a journey and I can, get, can, we, can we get to know this Jesus together? Can I tell you what he's like? Can I do it through stories and the things that I've been told from eyewitnesses and the things that I've researched? Can I paint you a picture of this Jesus so that you get to know him so that in the moments of difficulty, in the moments of fear, in the moments when you think everything's not going to go right, that you can look up and say, no, actually, he has a track record. Not just with these people who experienced him before when he kept his promises to them, but he's also got a track record with me. I know him. And when you slip on that wall, as you're climbing up, the rope will catch you. The certainty will be there. The roots will go down, go down deep. Look, I'm really excited about this series. Um, we want to study Luke together to get to know the true Jesus better. Come along for the journey. Guys, we're going to have some really cool stuff. We're going to be doing a, a daily devotional on our website. You can just click on it. It's going to be just a few minutes long. You can click on it every day, and we're going to talk about Luke. And if you really want to get involved, watch the sermons, watch the devotionals every day. And I think that by the time Christmas comes or just after that, you will have enjoyed the unexpected picture that you have of Jesus Christ. Come along with us. Looking forward to it, okay? So let me pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace, and I'm thankful that we've had this time to just talk a bit about uh, Luke's gospel and the reasons why it is that it's important and how Luke went about 
um, writing it. So I pray, Father, that you would convince us the way you convinced him and the way he wanted to convince Theophilus, that you'd convince us that we have certainty of what we believe. Would you use this next few weeks? Would you use our uh, attempts during the week to communicate through video and other things through these devotionals? Would you use all of that to help us to know you better so that we can stand for you even greater? We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.